0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. How does the following line sound to you when I say it? We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. It's a heavy statement, and people either love it or hate it. Very few people are sort of of two minds about it. Do you recognize that line? We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. It comes from a prayer that we will pray in just a few moments, that we pray every time we celebrate the right one service of Holy Eucharist called the Prayer of Humble Access. And it is one that has been prayed at St. Matthew's for 221 years, going strong every Sunday, at least in one of our services. But it is a prayer that you will be hard pressed to find, even offered, in almost any other Episcopal churches in the entire United States at this point. And that is because most churches don't like right one. That's the old fashioned service, the one which we are making use of today. And you might think most churches don't make use of that passage or that service because it's too old-fashioned. People won't understand it. It's got these and thous and seths and dusts. And so nobody will understand what is going on, so we need to update in order to connect with people so that um, they understand that what we're doing is still relevant. That's why... The Book of Common Prayer in 1979 introduced some new services that have updated slightly more modern language. But the real reason you don't find it used in any services is because most clergy do not want anyone in their congregations to have to pray the prayer of humble access. They do not want you to hit your knees and say these words, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, because they do not want to discourage you, they do not want to deflate you, they do not want to in any way impact negatively your personal sense of self-esteem. But the right one's service presupposes that the way that people come to feel good about themselves in life is not by self-esteem. It comes from something that you might call God-esteem. And so the real question is, does saying we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table? act in the way that most people assume it does? Or does it perhaps act in a different way than most people assume it does? Now, why am I talking about this this morning? Because in our famous gospel lesson, which Sarah read to us so beautifully a moment ago, we hear of the Syrophoenician woman who approaches Jesus and when he initially is somewhat dismissive of her, She comes back at him and says, Sir, even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her words were forever memorialized in the prayer of humble access, that we come like dogs feeding off of crumbs that have fallen to children, in order to, in some way, get close to God. And when Jesus hears of this woman's humility, that she's not saying, I deserve to be fed by you because of my own standing, but rather because of your graciousness in spite of my own lowly status, well then Jesus says, wow, lady, you are smart. You are insightful, and your daughter is healed because of it. This is a woman who posited to Christ that the way we get close to God is by identifying the personal point of need in our life, the place where we are vulnerable, where we are not worthy, where we have fallen from the high standards that we set for ourselves and that we think God has set for us. And it is in that place, believe it or not, that we gain access, humble access, to God's grace. Now, just... An example or two, this prayer when we were little. In my house growing up, my father's an Episcopal minister, and so we had a lot of sort of church nerdery going around the kitchen dinner table. And we were, unlike most kids in the world, thank God, familiar with the prayer of humble access. We knew it by name. And so when my little brother Simeon, who we used to bully, was born, we used to tease him. We would say, "Um, Simeon, you're not good enough to say the prayer of humble access. (laughs) If we're not so worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs, you're not even good enough to say that, Simeon. That was our little funny joke, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> but the real question that I want you to think about today is what is more essential for your mental health? Is it self-esteem, which by the way, is what the world teaches, or is it absolution? Now what is self-esteem? Self-esteem is the idea that you can feel good about yourself because you know deep down that in spite of what other people might have you think, you are actually good. This is called an internal style of attribution. Because I know that I am good, I can therefore feel good and stand on my own two feet As I face life head-on. That is one approach to feeling good about yourself in the face of life. If you want to go into this territory a little more deeply, you might make a list of all of your personal attributes, the best ones. Are you a thoughtful person? Are you loyal? Are you educated? Are you creative or savvy and street-smart? Are you articulate? Are you organized? What elements of your personality can you stand on in confidence? I'm sure there are a few. And the not being worthy to gather up so much the crumbs under thy table is not a statement that you are worth less, but is a statement that in spite of those attributes that we all possess various varieties of, you need more than that in life to actually feel confident. Maybe you remember how this played out on Saturday Night Live in the 1980s when Al Franken portrayed a character named Stuart Smalley who would look himself in the mirror, a 6 year old man with braces. That's always a good sign, by the way. Vanity. A toupee. And looking at himself in a mirror, he would say, Stuart, you are good enough. You are smart enough. And doggone it, people like you. And then in every episode, he would say, well, except for X, Y, and Z. And by the end of the episode, his self-confidence, in spite of his attempts to build himself up through appealing to his own personal inner attributes, would ultimately, he'd be left in a little puddle of self-pity and despair. This is why the great theologian Martin Luther said, if you turn a person in on themselves for comfort, they will always become discouraged. It might sound like a novel thing. You will never hear anybody else say that, except when you pray it here and you get into right one. But maybe you've experienced this to be true, that in spite of your attributes, when you actually look at yourself on Zoom or look at yourself in the mirror that you feel like the guy in AA who said every morning I get up, I look the enemy dead in the eye and then I shave him. (laughs) And it's because you laugh that I know you need something more than an internal style of attribution in order to feel confident in this life. And that is what the Christian faith posits and offers in the form of something called absolution, which says that Christians feel good about themselves because they know that in spite of all of their failings and the mixed bag that they are, the passive-aggressive, mercurial, king or queen of pettiness when engaged, also sometimes incredibly thoughtful and sweet, that in spite of all of the various and sundry elements of your personality that are constantly in flux, one thing is sure, God loves you. You are loved. Mixed bag that you are. And this is where Christian confidence comes from. It comes not from looking inside, but from looking outside to the God who is full of grace. And before whom we come, realizing that we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under thy table. But thou, O Lord, whose property it is always to have mercy And suddenly, we realize that God doesn't just love us when we're good or because we're good or because of the things we've done that the world says are good. No, God loves the whole you when you're asleep, when you're awake, before the coffee has kicked in, after the coffee has kicked in and you've forgotten about him and everything in between. I wanna read to you a quote and close with one illustration of what this might look like. This quote comes from a a theologian named Alistair McGrath and his wife, who's a PhD psychologist. They wrote a book together called The Cross and Christian Self-Esteem. And tell me if given what I've shared with you, it doesn't now make sense what they say. They write, for the Christian, it may be helpful to think of positive self-esteem as a psychological sign of having comprehended that one is counted as right with God and thus with oneself. There are two quite different ways of thinking about the idea of being in good standing in the sight of God. The first way involves an internal style of attribution in which the following style of question is asked. What is it about me that would allow anyone to count me as righteous. This way of thinking can lead to despair if the person's self-view is negative and to an unmerited conceit if the person holds a good opinion of himself or herself. The internal attribution style naturally leads to the triumphalist view that we can do something to make ourselves feel better before God. If we can justify ourselves by our works and our accomplishments, our emotional investment tends to fall on our achievements and spurs us to attempt to achieve even more. Our sense of personal security and esteem thus comes to rest upon what we do, what we have done, and the way we feel about it. The second approach concerns an external style of attribution in which the question being asked is altogether different. What is it about God that makes him see me as righteous and worthy? This style of attribution creates a sense of expectancy for action on the part of God rather than feeling that we ought to be out there achieving something in order to gain his love. This vital shift in the frame of reference moves us away from a human-centered, works-oriented approach to our personal worth and instead points us firmly toward a God-centered, faith-oriented approach. Now, you've seen this play out before because you know somebody who is incapable of saying they are sorry. You know somebody who says, this year I am cutting all negativity out of my life. Positivity only in my sphere. And you know what? They're insufferable and they are constantly frustrated. You also know somebody who is actually able to admit when they are wrong without dwelling on it. And who is able to actually listen to you without thinking about how everything you say relates back to them. And they're wonderful. And you love being in their presence. Now, I just met with a couple a moment ago. They're getting married in June. And if I advocated to them, That they assume an internal style of attribution for their future together. Well, I'd be sending them up a creek with a paddle, without a paddle, because they would believe that in order to be happily married, they have to both be totally on the same page with each other at all times. And that I will love you when you're acting right and when you're acting good and when the chemistry is good. But the moment things hit the rocks, the moment one of you has a bad proverbial hair day, if you only believe that you love a person based on their attributes, well, what can you do? But if a person knows they are loved in spite of their failings, even when they do the dishes the wrong way, or don't close the cabinets, or squeeze the toothpaste out of the container in some unorthodox fashion, from the middle and not from the back end, or drive in a weird way, or use the wrong mapping program, or don't fix their hair in a certain way. Well, if you don't have a style of love that can incorporate both the good and the bad, things will quickly fall apart. And this is the way God loves you and me, And this is why we revel in praying in this way that is laid out for us in our right one service. Now in the movie Slumdog Millionaire, maybe you've seen it, there is a profound scene at the very end when the young man Jamal finally meets back up with the love of his life, Latika. But since they last saw each other, her beautiful face has been cut with a switchblade knife by an awful person. And as a result, she has an enormous scar running down the center of her cheek. And when she runs up to finally meet him, she has covered her face and her scar over like this because she is thinking, he won't love me if he sees how my beauty has been blemished by my new scar. And he takes her veil off and he sees her scar And instead of disregarding it, he bends forward and he kisses the scar. That is what it means for God always to have mercy. And if you're tracking it all, you will feel better, not worse, about life for having prayed the prayer of humble access. Amen.